welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. What can I say about our next guest? I find it really difficult to find the words to describe who Jimmy Okumbanjo is and the real impact of what she does. Essentially, Jimmy is a documentary filmmaker. She makes films to celebrate and advocate black women in the workplace. But in reality, her impact and interests are so much deeper and broader than that. Jimmy's on a mission to make the world reckon with the way it has unfairly treated women of color in the workplace, both historically and currently. She's doing this not by lobbying or protesting, but through the medium of powerful and honest storytelling. Across her 20-year career, working in leadership roles with global Fortune 100 corporations, she's delivered transformations in 14 countries and four continents with over 200 leaders. She produced the documentary film Arise Firebird this year due to her deep multi-industry experience and first-hand knowledge of what senior and experienced female leaders of colour often face in the workplace. In this episode of The Wellbeing Rebellion, I talked to Jimmy about her experiences of systemic racism, both personally and in her work, as well as her visions for how we can make the workplace more equitable for everybody. This episode is a deeply personal one for me and really explores the controversial and often divisive subject of racism and its impact. It's a critical episode for anyone who considers themselves a well-being rebel, regardless of their skin tone, and one I can't wait to share with you. Hi, Jimmy. Thank you so much for joining us on the Wellbeing Rebellion. How are you? I am. I'm glad to be here. I am excited about talking, catching up with you again, Ngozi, and having this conversation. Fantastic. Let's get straight into it then. This podcast is really all about mental health and well-being, and how organisations can improve the lives and the welfare of their employees by supporting them um, with a culture that in, encourages everyone to feel. Um, psychologically safe enough to discuss their mental well-being. And what we're doing here in this particular episode is looking at the welfare and well-being of one particular um, sector of the employee workforce, which is women of colour, right? So um, I, I really want our audience to to recognize that some of the things that we talk about is going to be personal. Other stuff is going to be um, based on the research that you've done and I've done. Um, but it all still goes back to that mental well-being and that welfare of, of, of employees, all employees. Um, so that's just my little warning for anybody who's saying, why are you guys talking about this? We're talking about this because it matters. It really, really does. Having said that, your mental health, Jimmy, have you ever struggled with your mental mental health in the past? 
And can you tell us a little bit about what that was? You know, so since we're talking about the workplace, I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about where I've struggled with mental health at work. I've always accepted that I'm, I, I've always accepted on some level that work, especially work in England, had to be incredibly painful. And it was my job to try to figure out how to just not let that be anybody else's problem because I was constantly told that, you know, it's just, that's what you're supposed to do. Even, even from employers, even from, you know, H, our lovely HR people. And, you know, I do call people out, not because I want to call people out, but because, you know, otherwise I'm talking in abstractions, you know. Um, so I would, it was really normal to go to work every day and just be disappointed, disappointed in myself and disappointed in everybody. And trying to, you know, pretend, you know, pre- and always having to project I'm okay with the fact that just every day I'm so unhappy. And I, I didn't realize how bad that was until I started working for myself recently. And, and actually being able to experience a range of emotions in the day. And not just having to constantly have to constantly have to try to spin unhappiness into into something else, into like it was my fault that I was so unhappy. So there have been very dark times in my career. Um, I would say more dark times than light. And the biggest shift I had to make was to change the environment in which I was. More so than changing my attitude, I had to change the environment. And it's, um, I remember one year I read 45 leadership books to try to figure out how to be resilient. I did coaching and coach my, out of my own money, getting coaches and courses to figure this out because I figured, you know, I had a very high internal locus of control. So I took full ownership. You know, I was going to have the grit. I was going to lean in. I was going to figure this out. And I couldn't figure it out. And the answer really was I need to change through my environment, a drastic environmental change for me to at least experience now the range of emotions opposed to constant, constant um, anguish and sadness. And you know, the funny thing is that, you know, you get used to operating. I got so used to operating with levels of sadness and anxiety. And I use anxiety specifically, not just nervousness, that when, and the times when my mood would lift and something was really great in Gozi, I would get migraines. I would get migraines. And I had to now start researching why is it that people get migraines when they're happy? That was my career. Like, that was my work life. I had, and I found that it's a thing. It's, it's, there is some research, very preliminary research around certain, in certain, around certain celebrations, certain kinds of people get migraines. And so I'm so not used to that, that when good things happen or when I'm kind of in that space, I would get migraines. So now, you know, they talk about trauma rewiring the brain. You know, that's for me, my own experience of, I'd be so worried. So I did a TED talk and recently, and once upon a time, I would have gotten a migraine after that after something like that. And it's like, I, like, you know, I, I, I can now just let go and just be happy and, and go with my, my moods and, and lean into feeling good. 
and not have to you know worry about waking up with you know seeing the aura of lights the the, the light sensitivity the nausea the sickness and then lose a day and maybe you know lose a day two to two three days recovering from that you you said so much but i think it would really help um our audience and me it, it, to to explain the context of it because um for those who don't know who you are could you explain you know how first of all you've got that wonderful american accent so you're not a native brit how did you end up on these shores uh what was your career before you went into filmmaking and what were the specifics yeah. of these incidents that made you feel so anxious and to come to expect the workplace to be a, a sad and difficult place for you to be sure um and my expectation was it was my fault it was sad and difficult not that it wasn't the workplace so i worked i was born in england so i was uh, i did i was hatched on these shores um, but i grew up in three countries so i'm a third city i was a third city child and a third city adult i grew up in the united states in the midwest nebraska for your high school and university i um and my early years, my elementary kindergarten years were there as well. Um, Nigeria, my family is from, I spent quite a bit of my, my, my younger days there as well. And in, and the UK, I did do some education here and I came back here professionally to work, um, in England. My background professionally, um, has been operations management and management consulting. I've worked in that field for decades and I specialize in engineering operations. And so so helping you know, multidisciplinary, large-scale engineering companies that are running hundreds of projects simultaneously, my job would come in to help, would be to help them, help the leadership put in structures so a leader can oversee two, three hundred projects, um, and and not a project manager. That's different, but there's but helping the organizations really look at a hundred projects as a portfolio and get those projects, you know, on time. To budget delivered in full with client satisfaction, and really, we put in concrete processes and and a lot of streamlining. So that was the work, and I did that, and I you know, I liked it. We got a we saved hundreds of millions of dollars for our clients. Either we either saved or produced um, more revenue, and um, technically I enjoyed the work, but I always ran into a space where people did not believe I could do the work. Um, it would get to a point where I have to actually present white men who didn't have any experience just to repeat stuff I'd said for it to be accepted. And it was. So explain that. What do you, what do you mean present white men? So I get an example where I was doing some a project plan of some of transformation piece. And as a VP from my own company, could not understand why this project plan was not going to, why this was the way it had to go. And he kept on prevailing and prevailing and prevailing. And I sat down, explained, you know, we were getting results and we had a robust plan. And then finally, you know, I had to, one of his, um, we're in a meeting trying to present the new VP's way of working. And one of the junior white guys, was, white men said, this is ridiculous. He walked, he left, called the VP. The VP then called me left like a, the same day. Let's just put that aside, Jimmy. Yeah, let's just put that aside. Let's go do what you were going to do. And I had been prevailing with him for weeks that what he was asking could not be done. And actually, we had something 
that was working. He had brought me in to turn around a project and we had turned it around. And this came out of, I don't know where. You know, so things like that had happened. Um, going into meetings where I'm explaining, I was another UK companies um, talking about how they need to reproduce their projects. And again, giving example after example of the work I'd done. Someone came in, no experience. Um, they were from Europe, European. They came and they were like, yeah, that's exactly correct. What she was saying was incorrect. And she had no background base to say it, but they kind of went with what she did. So in that workshop, when we now be began running these workshops and I had 20 plus years experience, I had to, I, my job was to go to Marks and Spencer's and buy chocolate, to go to um, the garage and buy chocolate biscuits. And I would serve chocolate biscuits during the workshop. Um, and that was one of my last jobs before I left the corporate world. And, if, and, and then the feedback was like, you know, I need to learn how to be more of a team player and not be so robust with my opinions. And this has come off the back of leading multinational global transformations. And, you know, and it was my fault for not finding a way to take that in good, in good humor. And you know what? Now, I see they had a point. Because here's the point now. I should have realized that I was in a space with a butt. Really, that I should have disconnected and disengaged much sooner from anything they were saying. She was like, you know what, you're paying me to serve cookies. I can work on my novel. You know, I could be sitting in here as you're doing whatever, you don't need my, you don't want me to be involved. You relegated me, literally the only black person in that room to a corner. And this is a multinational consulting company. You relegated me to sit in a, to sit in a corner and serve cookies. And I've been told repeatedly to shut up. I should have used, I could have used that time to work in the meditation. I could have used that time, you know, to have done more Tinder dating. I could have used that time. Again, I could have been working on my, I could have been working on my film. Could have been enrolled in a PhD program and worked on my PhD. If I could have dis, if I really disengaged myself from that and realized, they just keep on paying me. Sure, not a problem. If you keep on paying me. But I was, I was, I felt, I was stupid. I was stupid because I wanted to engage with those people. I was stupid because I, I stupidly thought that so, I had something to offer. I was just so idiotic and completely just, it was the dumbest thing I could have done to think I had something to contribute to that team. And my experience helping other companies over, um, not seeing the way they were going. And I've seen clients I've worked with make those same mistakes and have disastrous results. So when you chip in and say, actually, I have, I'm the only one in this room who's done this at least 10 times, I can give you some perspective that you're going down a dangerous path. And that was, could save taxpayers in the UK mil, hundreds of millions of dollars and also save time on delivery. That was the dumbest thing to ever think about. My job, I actually just been researching, ooh, who else has good cookies? Ooh, maybe you can do burgers and pizza. I did pizzas one day. They love that. Ooh, you've got pizzas in. I could have just been checking out all the all the delivery apps. That was my mistake. So I so then I would have then my mental health wouldn't have suffered because I would have understood. I'm just here to serve. To, to, I'm just here to bring pizza and sit in the corner and and work on my novel. You know, and I you know I ended up getting a hundred thousand words of the novel done. So you know, it's not at work. Yeah, I I I do listen. I I get it. Your story and my story do. <laughs> that, that, that there's so many parallels 
big blue chip organization, high achiever, overlooked time and time and time and time again to the point where you internalize and you think, is it, is it me? Is it, what, what is it? But where I disagree is that you should have, you should have just, it was your mistake not to have recognized that your place is in the corner. So I'm I being, disagree. So I'm being hyperbolic. I know you're being hyperbolic. I know you're being a yeah. I know. I know you are. But the but the, but this is to me the serious point. See, for for me, I my mental health suffered like yours because I refused to completely give up the ghost and wave the white flag and say, "Well, if that's what you want me to do, I'll do it," because I continued stubbornly to have ambitions and dreams and that that were never realized that's what snapped me but the problem i have is now that i've stepped out of that space like you have we've stepped into entrepreneurship we are free to do what we want when we want how we want to do it when, and with whom it's made me even more of an activist because i kind of not kind of there's no kind of about it i now know passionately if we sit in the corner, that might save us, but it does nothing for the people coming behind. So let me tell, give that, let me, let me talk about that example, about the cookies example. Maybe that's what we'll talk about as the, as a case study today. Okay. You know, I meet a lot of women and are, so why I know you in Gozi is you supported my documentary in some capacity, believe it or that. Um, and so no, it tells more than that. what does that mean? I supported documentary. Heck! I was in the okay, documentary. Yeah, well, come on. Star. She was the star. Of the <laughs> I was a star. You hear that, guys? Um, I was a star. She was. So one of the and I. So Arise Firebird is my documentary. Women of color transcending and finding joy at work. And the film initially, I called the film "Vanishing Women: Why Women Are Leaving." So that that was not the story. That was not the entire story. Of the documentary. It, we explained what they went through, but how they found joy and peace and happiness in their work, in their lives. And when we, and it was important for me to center the experience of the victim and the victim survivor. And I use the word victim on purpose because without victims, you don't have perpetrators, you know? So, so the victim survivor centering their experience because it changes the, the conversation when you center the victim survivor. The reality is I spoke to a lot of women before and after, before in, and, and, and before making the film and subsequently. And from a mental health standpoint, I think we do have to center the victim survivor experience. If I'm sitting in that room and I'm definitely unhappy, as unhappy as I was, getting to the point where I was becoming physically ill, are we asking someone like that that they now have to stand up and fight or they have to at least survive for and then figure out what they're going to do later? We, I've met women. Who have, who have called me and told me about the times they have attempted suicide because of how they felt at work. Do we tell them that, well, if they leave, who's going to stay and fight? Who are we fighting for? We're fighting for these people. And if what makes you successful, we have to, we have to determine that as a community, but also individually and community-wise. There's a battle in me about how much I fight against the obvious 
racism that still pervades every aspect of modern Western society, whether that be politically or socially or in the workplace, commercially. How much I fight and make a stand and take take the blows and hits and still strive forward. And the part of me that says, if this has not fixed by now, will it ever fix? Will it ever change? But I suppose there is the grain of hope in me that says, whilst I can still fight, I will, because if I if I just give up, then then it doesn't improve. And the I've been I mean it's just very timely as this our conversation. And that's why I'm so excited to explore this because I'm just so frustrated by the fact that we don't seem to have moved forward in our assessment of how we will resolve the issue in the last 50 years. We're still at the stage of let's research and find out more. Let's do another study. Why do we need another study? We have the results, like you said. So I'd like to offer an additional perspective because I think what I love about these conversations is there's, there's, a, it, there's a plurality of, of perspectives and a lot of them are valid. First of all, for me, like, what is actually the issue? I, I, for me, I've been what, what is the, I question what the issue actually is because they're different, depending on who you are, it's a different perspective. I also think in terms of the word fight in the sense that, you know, I am giving up. I don't feel I have given up. Ngozi, I produced a feature-length documentary film on my own. That's not giving up. That's not easy work. It's definitely That's not. That's not the easy road. No. It's not the easy road. So it is not. No one becoming an entrepreneur is not the easy path. That's not, we didn't just check out. We just like, okay, I don't like, you know, being burned. So I'm going to jump into a furnace. <laughs> a furnace yeah, from inside, to fire. inside. No. In a furnace in the sun, and the sun is in hell. It's the sun inside that. That's where I am because I just want the easy road. That's yeah, not the easy I, path. I, I agree. I haven't given up. I'm probably working even more now. I definitely than I am. I worked for someone else. I definitely am. But I am. feel like so this notion of giving up. I feel like no, I've decided to take ownership of my narrative. You know, we're told that in corporate to be proactive. We're told to look for opportunities. So I want to be, I want, I want to fully realize myself and have the impact I desire. If that was available for me, I wouldn't have left. But I'm not gonna, so I think there's that piece around giving up. My other thing is that I'm also very careful about that because it sounds like I don't want to pass judgment on what anyone else decides to do. Staying in the corporate world is not easy and it's not giving up. Becoming an entrepreneur is neither or some sort of hybrid. But for a lot of people to get the safety, the victim survivor, they need space. And if they, if they have an employer, if they're gracious to have a great employer who recognizes they need space, they have different options. Such And, and I think they need to be given space. And that space will be leaving the toxic team, changing the, changing the toxic boss, you know, separation of toxic, from the toxic employee who's causing the problem, changing supply, being put on a different project, being put in a different geography. There has to be some sort of space created 
allowing them to go on sabbatical, allowing them to work remotely from home so they don't have to be around the toxic team. If nothing is done to create space where the employer can do something, right, then the employee's options are limited because with the employer, there are a lot more options in terms of creating space. But if the employers see the need for that, no, just try to take it. Just go back and let that person keep putting their hand up your skirt. And I'm sorry for being so blunt, but that's what we're talking about. That is what we're talking about here. There, there is that thing about that. I mean, you raised so many interesting points, but one thing I wanted to talk about is the motivation for change. What is the motive for organizations to, to actually engage with the issue of equity and inclusion and diversity in the workplace. And I really want to, to focus in on those three things because EDI has just become a, a, another word like mental health and well-being. It doesn't, it's almost, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just a movement. But I mean, how can they really make sure that it, it, the workplace is the true meritocracy that they think that it is when it isn't right um and the motive for change though like you you expressed it so eloquently what what is it is it because we don't want to get sued we want to increase market share we or is it because it's the right thing to do i like to think it's both i think the right thing to do is highly simple is again overly simplistic i used to think that would be enough but i realize people have very different codes of ethics and moral background. Like, you know, there are people who believe eugenics is the right thing to do. So if they truly believe eugenics is the right thing to do, they have a very different view about how they'd engage with some of these issues. Explain what eugenics is in case anyone in our audience doesn't know. So eugenics, well, okay, so they're a very, very light experience, but basically eugenics speaks to population control and selecting certain types of, trying to move towards an ideal human race by deliberately intervening into who gets to, to have children and such. Overly simplistic. Um, so I think that people have very different moral compasses. And I, I've come to accept that actually a lot of people think, believe what they're doing is correct. A lot of people truly believe women are as smart. A lot of people truly believe because I'm African, I'm not as intelligent. And they may not. So the right thing with that kind of standpoint is, is difficult. Why we made a rise firebird, why we made the documentary, it is centering the victim survivor experience primarily. But our hope also by doing that is that to build empathy and compassion for people who don't understand exactly what's happening. So where I feel I'm, I'm keen to engage with organizations or with anybody who's not, who doesn't feel, who, especially who doesn't feel this has anything to do with them, is to watch the film. And then to reflect, you know, as a parent, spouse, sibling, friend, human, how do you feel about what you've seen? And to connect to the humanity, to our common humanity, to at least be able to see that's okay. Because not for every, not everyone's going to come on board um, right away. We need our innovators, early adopters. The 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 those who see the vision, we need them to see this and for them to relentlessly influence their peers. So it's 16%, the, diff the model in business, the diffusion of innovation model. 
And it says, you know, 15, 16% of the population fall under innovators and early adopters. They have to move before other people. And trying to get everyone on board at the same time, it's not going to, well, it may be easier to focus on those early on because they're the ones who are going to be able to influence the early majority. We are, I don't think we're at that space of having early majority, but I think everyone assumes that we do. Because once we have the early majority on board, the late majority will follow, the, the late majority only follows the early majority. They will not be influenced by anything else except where everybody else is doing it. So we have to, so we need to understand that who are the people, who are the vision carriers? The ones that will go, who will take this issue into their country club because it matters. They were supposed to have a lunch. Yeah, I'm the president. And not because you, because of who they are. They're going to basically torpedo their own country club lunch, knowing the members are going to be choking on their salmon while they talk about this issue. That's who we need to find. And, for, and that's for me. And, so, and we're trying to build empathy. So the film helps build empathy. The second thing for me about, about trying to make this change is that it, it's, I think that, so advice for the more pragmatic people. I do think there's writing, there is some writing on the wall and companies aren't so great really at having a long-term view because there's the quarterly, the monthly reporting, the quarterly business reporting they do. And they're used to, they need to have those numbers. And this issue will come up against that in the short term because, you know, you start making these changes you may see in the short term a performance drop because change is disruptive. But we also know the fastest way for any, so here's the hack, but it's a double-edged sword. The fastest way I think companies are going to try and fudge their numbers. And oh, the fastest way, not fudge, the fastest way a company can get a quick win and really should do this, but it's also, it's a double-edged sword, but is their procurement supply chain. And I we'll see more and more companies doing, I expect we'll see more and more companies saying, listen, we could at least start demanding our vendors be more diverse. And all of a sudden, the supply chain bosses like this amazing person because they've been able to, to solve this issue. The problem is they're pushing, they're pushing the problem to the supply chain. And we'll see larger corporations and mega corporations following suit of pushing this to their supply chain. So if you are in a supply chain, your supplier, your the, the big $25, $250 billion tech company doesn't have to get their house in order to require you as their supplier to have their house in order. And I think that's a quick win for any major corporation. A quick win. Make your supply chain be more diverse. That's something you can take really quickly. But then it puts you in the supply chain that you're going to have to carry the weight for them not doing the work. So I would say if you, you know, if you're a supplier and many businesses are, that's going to be where that pressure will start to come from. I've actually seen that happen. I've seen multi-billion pound um, projects go to the supply chain with demands about um, the proportion of ethnic minorities working at various levels and that not be reflected in their company. Um, uh, I'm lucky enough to get in the room because I obviously I'm, I'm black and I run a, a supply company, a, a service company that supplies to businesses. So I'm part of that target audience. But the people that, that were 
pitching for our work, <laughs> we're all white. So I think you're right. That is a quick win. And it benefits those of us who decided to step out of corporate and set up on our own. And it might be the answer. It might be the answer. But there's a risk, right? I think it's part. I don't think there's one answer. I think we should, I mean, black women, women of color, we're not monoliths. And professional women are not monoliths. Mm -hmm. Some of us want to stay in the corporate world. Some of us want to leave. Some of us, it's the best option. It's a variety. But understand, I'm a small business. So putting my hat in the ring for those kinds of things um, would be, well, would be great. Absolutely. But there are also medium-sized companies that are still completely unrepresentative of, of people of color, right? There are also multi-billion dollar companies that are also in the supply chain for other multi-billion dollar companies. So it will help small businesses, but I think it will also put pressure on mediums and larger or, or companies to be competitive mm -hmm. in that scale mm -hmm. because you're going up against a company that for good or bad will just bring in their African staff and pretend that's their diversity thing and be able to skate through on that. But you have a hundred people in Yorkshire. You want to be able to run with the big people, the big kids. You're going to have to start thinking about how do you be more diverse? And it's sad because like, they don't, the, the big, the mega core who's sitting out there, RFQ, they're still trying to sort out their own problems. But definitely, it's a, it, I would say it would be just, it would be, it'd be like our own goal if they didn't do it. They just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an easy thing for them to just send out there and say, listen, just add that on there and let the other people do the dance to run around like headless chickens trying to figure out how to make this work. And I think that will help. I think it will help independent in, in businesses. I think the key is also understanding that there are technical people in engineering. I spoke to a head of HR. And he told me, he said, he, said, he said to me, in engineering, there are no women or black people that would be able to fill an engineering director in this company. He would not get any applications. This is the head of HR said that. Just, the, just the, they, they are not there, I quote him. Pipeline issue. Always the answer. Oh, it's a pipeline issue. I, I struggle to ever believe that. No, it's, no but that, ab, that absolved him of doing any work. Because exactly. when I asked him, how many exactly. BIPOC BAME specialized recruiters do you use? Pushback. They won't, they won't go to our website. I understand. My niece graduated first class in, in, in um, first class, couldn't get a job for nine months. But peers of hers who were nowhere as academically astute were hired before they finished. So do you think she'll want to keep on applying? So we, don't you think you should have to go and meet people who've been disengaged? He's like, that has nothing to do with his issue. I can't understand how there's been a pipeline issue. If when my parents were studying, they studied medicine in UK and graduated. So how is it possible that decades later, there's still not enough qualified so I'm black a, or minority ethnic people? I'm in a group with a hundred, with over a hundred black professional women who have all left banking, education, engineering, to now go into IT because they cannot progress in the UK in those areas. So, yeah, so they, 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 are, they are huge population. They're sitting there and they have disengaged because you keep, you know, it's only so, like I have other things to do in my life. I want to also give an impact. I, I want to make an impact 
applying for jobs, applying for 250 jobs is not having an impact. So I will look for other ways to make an impact. Because you have to understand, people apply, I mean, people apply for hundreds of jobs and then disengage. And then you wonder why, where people are. I spoke to a woman recently. She left banking. This is a white woman. She left banking to become a clown. A clown? A full-time circus clown. A, a clown, yes. Circus clown. So she's disengaged. So yeah, you have a pipe. She's, so she's disengaged herself. So if, you, if we want them, there is work to do to bring them back. And there can be work to bring them back. But the reality is, like, why? You know, these companies are making enough money. They don't really care. They're hoping this is going to pass. So it's a fad. I hear it a lot from DNI professionals, um, especially, uh, especially those who don't look like me. It's not, they don't care. It's just a fad. And so when I'm hearing this, from even from executives, when they're saying this, my friends say some of the worst things to me about this. Why would I now say, like, why, I want to have an impact. I want to help people. Why would I send them to someone who basically it's like the workplace equivalent of someone telling me, yeah, I don't believe in monogamy or even ethical polygamy. I believe a man should sneak around or a woman should sneak around. I don't believe I need to answer anybody. I don't believe in safe sex or protection. And yeah, and, but I believe my partner should only be faithful to me. And by the way, Ngozi, your, your brother's pretty hot. Can I get his number, please? That happened far too often <laughs> for me growing up and traumatized. <laughs> no, of course I yeah, would not. I would you? not. Yeah. But, but, no, but how do we, like, we want to say, yeah, yeah maybe you, I, you teach me how to be a better person. Like, you know, I could teach you. I could happily give you some advice on that. But I'm also not going to give you my brother's number. Two things can happen. I can talk to you about why your behavior is not yeah, helpful. I get it. I get but I'm not going to also give you my brother's number. Okay. And that's it. Oh. Jimmy, I could talk to you about this forever. So I would like to say, I would definitely shout out to your, to your listeners to check out Arise Firebird, our film. It's, we are organizing um, private screening events with companies, nonprofits, for-profits to watch the film, have a discussion after the film, to, to really start having some of these discussions um, and to see really how can we hold space for people who are struggling at work to be honest about what they're struggling with, whether it's done in religious organizations or nonprofits. We've done a lot of work with nonprofits um, in and around the world about this. And it's been really great for people to just talk about what they're really struggling with and how they could be supported. I have put my information in, I've, in, the, in the notes for this. So please, we'd really love to find out how that can, if that's of any benefit to you or any of your readers. We're also kicking up a Patreon um, for people who'd like to support individually to help us get this message out because we really want to, we really want to get this message out to at least, you know, we're aiming to get to a hundred uh, virtual events with different communities to spread the message of, of, of this film and to continue to have conversations like this. It, it's so important. It's the first step to any changes being aware of the situation as it really is. And I can, having starred in it, I can heartily attest to how brilliant Jimmy is and Arise Firebird as a documentary and a learning experience. So come on, Rebels, uh, have a look at the show notes and get get something booked in as soon as, as soon as possible. Before I let you go, though, I know you have to go, but I want to ask you our signature question. As a fellow well-being rebel, 
what is the one change that you would like to see implemented in workplace well-being? Greater focus on leadership empathy. Doing the slow work of exposing leaders to stories in their organizations, outside their organizations, from across different industries, across different time zones, time periods, about workplace injustice. Because I, th- I believe that's a big role in getting them to want to make this change because of who they are. So investing in that, the inner work of executive leaders and recognizing it's going to take time. So whether leaders invest it in themselves or companies invest in it for them, invest in a slow build of empathy building through exposure. Thank you so much. I hope you guys got as much out of that conversation as I did. It was brilliant to have you with us on the Wellbeing Rebellion and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Jimmy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show note and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.